Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palanker. You know, as we walk along the media path, we will occasionally stop and call your attention to something interesting that lurks in the shrubbery just outside your view that you wouldn't have caught without our trained eye, and then you will thank us profusely later. We also love our guest. Today, we're joined by Ruth Mendelson. Ruth is accomplished in so many ways. She is a composer and a producer and an arranger and an author. And what I think is her most endearing quality is she is a philanthropist and a humanitarian and somebody who strives to make the planet better and does it in a bunch of ways. Ruth will be with us in just a second. But Weezy, what do you have for us this week? Oh, we're going to read some reviews first of all. Oh, my God. And that's my responsibility. You know, we haven't done that. And uh, I guess here's a review from uh, uh, Ratch from Reno, a Rach Rach. from Reno. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you get a pronunciation from her? Are you sure it's Rach? We know because we've heard it from our producer, Dina. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, listen, she loves this podcast. Very engaging. And interesting. Definitely would recommend it to anybody looking for a great podcast. Bless your heart, Rach. We appreciate it. And also, bravo from Leica64, obviously a photographer. Well presented. I enjoy the playful and friendly banner between these two Southern California legendary personalities. Highly recommended. God bless you and everything you stand for. We Thank appreciate you for it. Thank your, you for your fine taste in mm-hmm. podcasting. So the first book that I wanted to talk about, Fritz, is kind of like a perennial favorite for me. It's like one of those books that you find yourself thinking about and talking about with other people who have read the book. The book is called The Invisible Wall by Harry Bernstein. This is a miraculous book written by the author in 2008 who, at the age of 93, was able to clearly recall the events of his childhood from before World War I. Wow. Harry Bernstein delightfully and vividly brings to life an all-but-forgotten time and place in working-class, smoky, milltown, early 20th century northern England, when Jews and Gentiles seldom mixed. His childhood street was the boundary where the two worlds collided, Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other. It was a divide that would be bridged by love. On the eve of World War I, young Harry watches as his sister Lily falls for Arthur, the Christian boy across worlds and cultures and history and tradition and across the street. When Harry unwittingly discovers their secret affair, he must choose between the rules he's been taught all of his young life, his loyalty to his selfless mother, and what he knows to be true in his own heart. This is a book you will not forget, The Invisible Wall by Harry Bernstein. Wow, sounds wonderful. And I wonder how World War I changed the neighborhood dynamics there because Germany was bounced. This is England, and after World War I, there's just a lot of new boundaries that were kind of created Mm -hmm. between countries. But I think England pretty much stayed the same and just sort of kind of lurched towards modernism. I just meant in terms of, you know, Jews, and then there was the rise, you know, in the early 30s, it was the rise of— um, authoritarianism in Germany and all that, but yeah, that's, 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 that's too late for him. Because with, with World War One, we didn't really kind of fix enough of what had led to World War One. No, we still erected all kinds of fissures. Yeah. yeah, we have. We created more. All right. Well, that sounds like a, a wonderful um, offer. Now, I'm going to talk about a series called Dope Sick. This is on Hulu. It's a multi-part series. 
Three episodes have dropped already. They'll introduce another one tomorrow night and every Wednesday thereafter. It's based on the book Dope Sick by Beth Macy. This is a gut-wrenching overview of the opioid crisis in America. Michael Keaton plays Dr. Sam Phoenix, who is a family doctor in a Virginia mining town. It's the arc of his experience prescribing OxyContin to his patients and then ending up having to testify in front of a grand jury about how many of those patients have died from overdoses. The stories come from a couple of different points of view. One, the doctors and patients prescribing and using the drug. A second view is law enforcement trying to hold Purdue Pharma accountable. Incidentally, this is all transpiring right now. Yeah. The Sackler family is pretending they're uh, bankrupt so they don't have to pay these fines. Three, the Purdue sales force that marketed the drug using false claims. There is a Shakespearean family dynamic that drives the story, too. Richard Sackler who is the one-time president of Purdue Pharma, has always been looked down on by the rest of the Sackler family. So he embarks on retribution, especially against his uncle Arthur Sackler, who came up with a successful marketing system for Valium. Richard Sackler wanted to beat Uncle Arthur's success by making their painkiller OxyContin even more successful. The company came up with a coating for the pill, which made it a time-release drug, which in turn made it seem less addictive in the short term. The company claimed that less than 1% of the patients become addicted, which proved to be wildly false. Michael Keaton is a powerful uh, presence in this movie. As I was talking to you before, Wheezy, about this is his second socially aware work lately. He did Worth, which is the true story of the attorney responsible for distributing the 9-11 victim funds, or a great piece of work as well. Also in Dopesick is Michael Stuhlbarg as Richard Sackler, the dark and obsessed head of the family business. He is wonderful. What this story does is put a disturbing human face on all of the aspects of this scourge called the opioid crisis. If you have had any of these uh, problems in your family, I am I'm highly recommending this is a beautiful piece of work. I think anybody should watch it, you know, whether you've struggled with addiction or not. I, I think it's important to watch pieces like this so that we don't just so easily turn up, you know, turn away from people that are struggling with addiction and saying, well, that wouldn't happen to me because, you know, I have more willpower. You know, because like, if you made those pills chocolate coated, I would find them very addictive. You know, I'd, you'd have me right yeah. there. So everyone has their, you know. Well, the the interesting thing about this is nothing is nuanced. You immediately understand how guilty this family was and how guilty Purdue Pharma was in, in manufacturing and marketing this drug that they lied about in their marketing program. They gave a financial incentive to the salespeople to go out and sell this false claim about uh, OxyContin. And I, I, I've been following the news story because right now they're in the midst of claiming a bankruptcy so that they don't have to pay these enormous fines levied by the uh, FTC or whatever. And it, it, it will make you be even madder. But it's, it's, it's an amazing piece of it work. It sounds like you're telling the story of uh, personal family grievances inflicted upon the world. Like, it, yeah. which is, you know. Yes, that's that's the what I mentioned is the Shakespearean class, yeah. which was this guy who's trying to trying to gain respect of these uh, snobbish family. Members. Like you think you can addict people. Yeah. I can addict more people. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, very disturbing. But I think we should, you know, Here just she comes. shine a light and bring in our guest. 
Our guest today is Ruth Mendelson. This woman is accomplished in so many areas. She's a composer and a producer of film and television soundtracks. She's created award-winning scores for HBO and Disney Channel and Discovery Channel. She is the first woman ever to teach in the film scoring department at the most prestigious music school in America, the Berklee School of Music in Boston. She's written a wonderful children's book. It's not really a children's book, honestly. It's a book of wisdom for all humans of all ages. It's called the Water Tree Way, with a foreword written by Jane Goodall, of course, who is the world's preeminent primatologist. She's sort of the, um, she's the Mother Teresa of nature. Yeah. I just love her to death. So please welcome Ruth Mendelson. Hi, Ruth. Hey, greetings and salutations. Nice to Thank talk you. to you there in beautiful Boston with your foliage rich in the background. I can't see the color of those leaves, but are are we seeing fall colors back there yet or what? Oh, I over there, yes. Over here, not <laughs> no, yet. Okay. All, right. okay. All right. Can you turn your camera? Thank you. So um, production value. Come on, Ruth. Let's go. So I just finished reading your book. I'm wondering, did you write this during the pandemic? Or, and when, like, what was your writing process like? Because it feels to me like you had to put yourself in, in an alternate universe. And as, uh, what was that process like for you? That's a really good question. Um, and first of all, hello, everybody out there. I hope you're well and staying safe, nice and healthy. Um, I It took me over 30 years to write that book. What? Wow. On and off. I've been, I, I was, I was inspired by this back in the, in the 1980s. I'm not surprised. There's so much wisdom in there. It's not something you can just sit down and crank in a couple of I, I had to, yeah, yeah. It, and it wouldn't leave me alone. I had no intention of writing a book. Um, I, but it wouldn't leave me alone. And it, you know, I do feel honestly, and I, I've, I've, I've said this before, but I think that, you know, honestly, you know, there's so much agitation happening in people. And I think that part of, if you really quiet down and that agitation is still there, it likely could be that there's something that, that is there for you to create. That's asking you to, to create itself. Or to turn that energy into fuel. Yeah, exactly. And well, that it, it's, it's kind of impacted in there. It's encoded in there. I think sometimes creative works are like that. Okay. Like if you're, if they, in order to be manifest, they're going to tap you on the shoulder and it might not always feel great. Sometimes it's great, like total ah inspiration. Like, um, in, like in your book, it's a mosquito. <laughs> yeah, exactly. E exactly. Things that so, we might, you know, and that it's interesting the way that you wrote your characters because things that we may uh, perceive as annoying are actually a lesson and you, and you should pay attention. Maybe there's something there for you to learn. Correct. Absolutely. G so, give, a, give a little um, a framework of the story just so folks who haven't read it yet understand what we're talking about. It's fanciful and wonderful. And give Yeah, this is kind of, it's like an, the way that I like to describe it, it's like an inner, outer, multi-dimensional treasure hunt fairy tale for children of all ages. <laughs> well done. So um, it's a, but I never could have imagined. I mean, I did finish it up during the pandemic and the pandemic allowed me the time to do it because film production for me kind of gratefully halted for a while at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I, I was, I mean, I'm, I love what I do, but I was, I was too busy. Like it was just like film after film after film. And I didn't really have much time in between projects um, so when the pandemic hit, actually for me, I had the luxurious position of just being a little relieved that I could just stop. I think that was shared by maybe more people than you realize. 
because yeah, yeah. the pandemic lessons will be unfurling for decades. Thank you. Exactly. I, I mean, it, it, to me, it, it was like nature just sending everyone to their room yes. to think about what they've done. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Beautiful. That, that's what it was always like. To me. So if you, you know? if this book has been your companion for the past 30 years, would yeah. is she or we, maybe they come to you in dreams? The way they do, the way a lot of the lessons do for Jay? Uh, music comes to me in dreams. Ah. But the book didn't come to me in dreams. The book came to me in, in living vision. Really? Yeah. I spend a lot of time alone in the desert whenever I can. Okay. Wow. For, for 30 years. A lot. I mean, whenever, even, you know, preparing for a film score or whatever I'm doing, the first thing that I'll do whenever I can. I mean, the, the COVID has changed this for me, but um, I was going out to the desert, you know, three to five times a year and always alone. And it's just me and 400 miles of land in all directions and just to get quiet. Well, an inspiration for Jay, your character in this book is influenced and inspired by music, which is the key to your life as well. Mm-hmm. So do you feel that that plays out in the lives of all humans, that there is a soundtrack to their emotional life? I actually had a dream about that once where I was told that, yeah. Wow. That that everyone, I wasn't planning on talking about this. This is cool. Okay. I had a dream once about 25 years ago where there, there's this one character that I often dream who I call Professor Music, and I get music lessons. And I'm always in the same, um, it's like an old fashioned one, you you know, those old fashioned table chairs, like, um, or table desks, where it's just one piece of wood. Yeah. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Oh, yeah. That was my elementary school. That's how old I am. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the room is always like that. I'm always the only one in there. But I'm surrounded by these desks. And then Professor Music comes to the the head of the class and I get these different music lessons. So one time it was about triads, which is basically a three, a triad for those of you who don't know, it's just uh, three notes that that, that then makes up a chord. Mm -hmm. And then what I, in the dream, what it was about was that every single person, every, everyone, no matter who you are, has their own triad. Coming from the frequency of the mother, the frequency of the father, and the frequency of the incoming baby for the lessons there to learn that life. Wow, that's wonderful. And so based on that triad, everyone has their own song. So then that that should be a harmony. Correct. But it doesn't always work as a harmony. Does someone kind of drift out of tune or into another key or what happens when it's not quite behaving as a chord as you continue together? Um, I think honestly, that's when people get sick. Okay. If that if, if that tune if that inner alignment that tuning is off, then it can be experienced as physical symptoms to help you get back on. Okay, so is that yeah. what you would define as the center when when Jay is told to look for her center? Would that center be like the chord would be in tune? Yeah, because that chord then vibrates with love. Oh, because the center is love. Okay, so I'm gonna kind of review a few of the lessons. It, it's it's like I was telling Fritz, it's like if you wanted to give your child all of the important lessons 
of the universe, you mm. you would give her or him this book or they, because we have to honor who we are. And so sure. I'm wondering if you went through and thought, okay, there needs to be a chapter that addresses this because this is really, really important, or if they just all came very naturally to you. So what I got was uh, the lessons include perseverance, respecting mm. nature, noticing mm. patterns, finding your center, remaining calm, de-escalating mm. conflict, honoring your ideas, hearing your own music, and that we are all connected. Mm. It's beautiful. And and so tell me how you what what the journey was like for you to incorporate everything that you felt was important for a human being or for any particle in the universe <laughs> to know yeah. into this book. Um it was a very organic process. It wasn't very intellectual at all. Okay. Um, so, and, and thank you for really reading the book in earnest, because it's obvious that you have. That's that's a that's a beautiful thing. Oh, um, my pleasure. Um, the book is meant as an offering of all of the things that I've that that I've learned over time and things that I was shown. So in terms of, uh, I do a lot of humanitarian work mm -hmm. and that influenced the part about, especially um, what to do in the face when you've experienced violence, how do you not take revenge? Because that's the fulcrum. It's like, if we're, you know, if you're going to perpetuate the cycle, then react. If you're going to put a stop to the cycle, then respond. But how do you do that? And how do you, you know, how is a child supposed to know that if an adult doesn't know how to teach that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I do a lot of work with children in war zones. And so I've learned there, there was a project that I did called the Well Wishes Project. Right. Right. Okay. I'm just going to, can I transgress for a second? Absolutely. Just because it's completely informed part of the book. Mm -hmm. Because it, the reason it, it took 30 years, I mean, I wasn't thinking when I started, it's like, oh, I'm going to take, I'm going to write a book and it's going to take me 30 years to release it. <laughs> um, that was the last that, you know, I know uh, it, this, this is just how that, that's just how it unfolded. Um, but okay. So the, the Iraq war, the second Iraq war was about to break out and it would just keep me, it was strange. It would just keep me up at night. Mm -hmm. I would just be staring at the ceiling in bed. Like, what is this going to mean? Not only for children in Iraq, because that's obvious. Mm -hmm. It's going to be devastating for them. But what about the children here? What is it going to mean for the children here? Mm -hmm. And the reason for Okay, this is I, okay. This is we're going to go down a little bit of a wormhole. Let's go, go back to 2002 when I met Jane Goodall at the UN in Geneva. I was opening as a musician. It's a crazy story if we have time for it. Oh yeah, Jane and I immediately we just totally hit it off. So she called me back in the states once I got back, and she, I, I wanted to do this project just interviewing children about life. And Jane was always, always just a huge ally in my commitments of service for the planet. She just got it when yeah. other people, when most people didn't. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, no, she's 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 incredible and really, really funny, by the way. <laughs> so, but anyway, so I did this project where I, I just decided, okay, I'm going to travel around the United States and I'm going to record, 
I'm going to record children, three children to youth. So three to 19 years old, that Mm -hmm. was the bracket. Mm -hmm. And, and just interview them about life, love, forgiveness, anything they wanted to say to kids their age in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And somehow I I was going to edit. I mean, I'm I'm also a professional editor, so I was going to edit the whole thing together. I was also going to record on-site music from the kids themselves. Okay. And so I created a CD and I had no idea. I knew nothing about Iraq. I knew nothing about Iraqis. I had no idea how to get a project like that over there. Um, I I had nothing you're supposed to have. I didn't have any funding. I didn't have anything you're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. I just, it, it just, but you know, there are just certain things in life. It's like when, when, when that impulse is there and it won't leave you alone. To me, that's life saying, go that way. That's the thing to do. Mm-hmm. So it didn't make any logical sense. And I hit the road. And so five months later, I had 72 gigs of interviews Whoa. with amazing children mm-hmm. and youth. Wow. Like former gang members wrote raps about love. Little kids white kids, black kids, native kids, Asian kids, just kids. North and and how did black. you get this material to the Iraqi children? It was okay. So then I finished, I, I finished the CD and then it came time to, first of all, I had to get it translated into Iraqi Arabic because how arrogant to create a gift for the Iraqi people and expect them to listen to it in a language that actually is not innately their own. Mm-hmm. So there was a student at Harvard who will forever remain nameless, who defied her family. We hid in a basement in in Harvard and recorded translations by flashlight. She was first generation Iraqi American. Why was that forbidden? Because at the time of of production, it was so dangerous in Iraq that if an Iraqi was, was, if it was even heard about an Iraqi collaborating with oh. an American, their family would have been murdered. Oh my goodness. Okay. Like there's just so much, it's, it's so layered and so devastating what happened over there. And mm-hmm. I just innocently kind of stepped into it. You know, I was just thinking like, well, you know, these children, I just, all I knew was that children need a better th- way than what the adults are, what we adults, I include myself in this, what we're providing for them right now. So this is a little thing I can do. And if I don't do a little thing, then then I am most certainly a part of this problem. How was the so, reaction over there? The reaction was incredibly positive. So to answer your question, mm-hmm. it was it was um, unknown to me when the when the project. So I had to record the the translations by flashlight, like I said, cut those in. And then the, the, the CD was smuggled in by a, a very brave, brave school teacher in Baghdad who did not want her students to grow up hating anyone. Oh. I mean, what a beautiful soul. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I started getting emails from Iraqi students. Really? Yeah. The first one was from this guy named Mohammed, who became a friend. Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget, he he wrote, you know, thank you. You know, I, I hope this finds you at your very best. Aww. You know, he's in the middle of a war. Yeah. And, and he said, thank you so much. We didn't know anyone anywhere cared about us. That's so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy powerful. And so that the CD actually ended up connecting medical communities between Baghdad and Cochin, India, and resulted in 
babies being airlifted out of Baghdad to Cochin at Ames Hospital in India for medical treatment. Mm. I mean, it prevented murder in Kenya. It's there's stuff online about it. It's just crazy. But that really influenced a, a portion of the book. Because it's like these children are enduring circumstances that no adult should ever have to endure. Yeah. What are we doing for them? How are we equipping them for the insanity that is inevitable in this world? It's not, you know, it's it's not to, I mean, it's important to fight the insanity, but I think it's it's really important to, how do we navigate through this insanity? Because it's here. Well, you, well, you, your instinct is light a candle. Don't pick up a rock. Literally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Light a candle because the, because the light is within us. Right. I mean, it's, we don't even have to light anything, but we have to show <laughs> someone our light. Yes. And that's what we you have. Did. I mean, you have to have the courage to love actively, you know, mm-hmm. um, love is a verb, right? It's, it's a verb, you know? And so, and, and to have boundaries and to be smart about it because yeah, they're, you know, I mean, it's a crazy world right now, but, so, um, can we go back to your childhood and, and maybe talk a little bit about where you received this wisdom and these lessons? Uh, I just knew very early on to go within. Hmm. I just, I, it's always been that way. Okay. I was kind of like odd man out <laughs> or odd kid out. In, man, in your family or in your community or uh in in family uh. and and in and in a way in community but i mean it, it, it i always knew that there was something greater um and i was always very brazen and i was never prevented from being which is a tribute to my parents like they didn't try to stop me from blazing away that's cool. You know. Yeah. Well, you you, um, you you work from your soul. You work from yes. your heart, which is quite lovely. And I'm wondering if your music is an outward manifestation of what it is that goes on in your soul <laughs> to sort of help you make the improvement to the planet that you sort of envision. You nailed what my intentions are. That's exactly it. Hmm. So if... If well, put it this way: if the music doesn't work, then it's not in alignment. You know, it's like it's just to stay out of its way. That that's my goal. You know, at the level of my personality, um, I don't write from a level of personality because that's fickle. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. to write from the soul, that's that's much more broader, more colorful, more expansive, infinitely more expansive. So how would you define the difference between soul and personality and how do people keep those two entities, if you will, in, in alignment? That's a really good question. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That's a big question. And that's a life pursuit, I would say. Okay. And that's, I think it's a journey for each person to choose if they choose it. Okay. Um, but personality to me is more, um, hmm. well, put it this way, the soul, I think one of the, one of, at least in my experience, one, one of the intrinsic qualities of the soul is that it's loving and selfless. It strives to, it, it, it strives to contribute. 
an aspect of personality or ego is that it, it can be any way that it strives to just take for itself. Okay. Um, and it not necessarily care so much about the whole, but much more caring about only the self, which is important. I'm not saying that that's not an important quality to have because we all have to, you know, care well for ourselves or, you know, hopefully. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, what you're talking about the whole opioid crisis and I just love you both of you are clearly such incredible truth tellers it's just awesome um thank you I I think you know there's so much medicating going on because people are out of touch with their souls you know okay. people just they're mm -hmm. looking for relief they're just looking for the relief in the wrong self-medicating I know well, they just want the whole society they it. want the pain to yeah. end yeah. they don't know the source of the pain and right. they're not willing to dig in and address the source of the pain when that's available it, well, also, I have to say, yeah, true, but we're also taught that. And this is where the part of me that's an educator, I see that a lot. I, 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 I deal with kids. Well, they wouldn't want to hear me say, call them kids. I deal with students because these are like young adults. I, I teach college seniors and You're I right. love all of them. <laughs> you know, I really do. Um, I, I, I didn't see. have one professor in college as inspirational as you. No one loved now you. Now I want to go back to college. None of your professors loved <laughs> no, you. No, they were bored. And it might have been because it was a college for underachievers and they were underpaid, maybe. I don't know. Maybe but, they were self-medicating. <laughs> maybe they were. I know hey, I was. You know? <laughs> no, but I mean, but, it's, you know, but, it's just hard when there's so much available to us, not even just opioids, but the things that are available to us that, that could be healing in some ways, like video games or streaming, you know, binge watching all night long. Um, how much is the right, you know, talk about balance in your book, Ruth. I mean, creating balance where you, you look forward to something and you delay gratification and you enjoy it because you've earned it. Or yeah. are you just numbing yourself with it all day long because you don't want to get back to where you left off with your life? Well, I mean, the thing is, okay, one of the, the, one of the essence, the essence of the main character to me is that she relishes taking risks, which is, the, it's a, a bit of the opposite of the kind of lifestyle that's encouraged of just being comfortable all the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but I just want to get back to just, just for a second yeah. about this whole thing about classrooms and, and opioids and drugs and all of this. I see many students many of them being American, I, I have, you know, there's large international presence in my classes. The American students, especially, who are addicted to um, ADD meds. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I hear this a lot from students. They don't like the drugs. They've been told to take them since they were children. Mm -hmm. Now they're jittery. They, they're, they're very, they, they have a hard time focusing on anything. Um, there is a model of education that I think we all really hopefully will, you know, address of modeling this idea that behavior modification is only to be found in a pill. Right. And it's, you it's, know? and there are certain forms of mental illness where you, you really need to medicate just to feel yes. normal. So it's, it's hard, like in your, in your book, Jay, she has to discern the difference between 
the advice that's good and the advice that are detractors or that are talking right. her out of something that she had intended to do and how at 10 or at 25 or, or at 75, do you know the difference? And how do you figure out the difference between what you, what the medicine that you need to take and the medicine, you know, there's these scenes in American Rust. Have you been watching that, Fritz? With I saw Je the first episode only, but I want to watch it. Yeah, we're going to, we haven't talked about it yet on the show, Ruth, mm -hmm. but anyway, it's about a cop that lives in the kind of like a steel town where the steel mill has shut down and it's played by Jeff Daniels. And there are these scenes where he's got these knives and these measuring devices where he's trying to wean himself off of the meds that he was prescribed after Vietnam or whatever he's been through in his life. I'm not sure. He's really trying to take a little bit less every day by crushing the pills and measuring them. Putting them on a scale and, and putting, doing a little and it's, less each day. And right. he's having a hell of a time because every time he feels challenged in his life, he just pops the whole yeah. pill. So, yeah, sure. And this is what we all face, right? Like what's sure. moderation? What's, what's useful? What's uh, damaging? Right. Well, I think that there's a really important lesson, and this is something that I really try to weave throughout the book, which is that we all have the power within us. Okay. You know, we, we all have something very innate that, that, that we can all count on also. I, I think that the, um, you know, one of the biggest problems in, in a way is also one of the greatest services is it like, I mean, in terms of the internet and everything be, being so quickly available to us. Right. I mean, that that is a, a huge benefit in so many ways. However, it doesn't replace showing a child, for example, just give a, just give a child a plant so that they can see what, how does that plant grow when the seed first comes up out of the ground? Mm -hmm. How did, you know, and waiting for that moment when you, first start to see that and then watching it uncurl every single day and watch just the 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 rhythm of nature you can't it's hit fast huge... forward on a plant what's that <laughs> i'm sure they've tried but you can't hit fast forward on a plant no you can't <laughs> and that's the magnificence of it right but also like it teaches so many different lessons when the seed coat is ready to drop i mean lessons in detachment and that was you so know, fascinating, the way that you created the stem as the wisest figure <laughs> in your pieces. Yeah, that, that, that just popped into my brain. This, that, is, that just, this is how we're attached to life-giving nutrients, or how would you describe it? Uh, well, how did you come up with that concept? It, it, it just came to me. You know, I, I wish I could really outline some really cool process with it, but it just, it just occurred to me like these stems are absolute precise knowledge and they, they can explain how things really work. Like, for example, the lesson that in order to achieve something, you need to fail. Right. And, and that's such an important lesson. Again, getting back to the whole drugs thing, it's hard. It, it, I mean, it sucks to fail. It hurts to fail. Who wants to fail? But it's necessary for success. So unless that's taught, then failure is always going to be avoided. The pain of failure is all that gets into that self-medicating thing. And one, like, one of the one of the fears I think is that, you know, because for example, you you know, you take a child, you know, take take a ten year old child, and he's willing to fail repeatedly at a video game, and he knows he's learning while he's failing, but to fail publicly. To fail in a way where other people, like the diving board, you, you have a you open on a very public scene where the child is failing publicly in front of all her peers. That's yeah. something that I don't think a lot of kids are strong enough 
to endure. And I wish that we could bolster that part of their, their, their being to be, to be more patient and more resilient to what, against what people would say or judge. That's one of the purposes of this book. Okay. Because you can't know what you have never seen. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't, I mean, none of us really can. I can't. So, you know, here's an example of a kid with real guts who really goes through some really hard things and triumphs and doesn't, doesn't give up. And also, you know, has, you know, there are, there are these other relationships with her classmates that are, uh, you know, how we're all connected. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, she goes on this journey alone, but she's not really alone. Yeah. She, she has a certain kind of a foundation. So, you know, I really hear what you're saying, but in terms of, um, I, I think it's, as many, um, it's cliche, but as, as many role models, hopefully that are fun, because it was a big emphasis, it really important for me to make the book fun. I had a lot of fun writing it. Yeah. So I figured if I had fun writing it, it's going to hopefully be fun to read, you know? Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> these days, at least uh, many of the people who I talk to, there's, there's this overwhelm. I mean, understandably so, because there's so many problems and kids are taught in school that they're running out of air, yeah. not to mention other resources. Adults are really many of them, not all of them, but many of them are very understandably preoccupied. So where are the examples of some health and some resilience and some inner brilliance? Like, where are they? So that's, that's where we need the arts right now. That's such an important point. And, and speaking of the arts, if you don't mind, I, I just want to get into the nuts and bolts of your main vocation, music, because uh, people may have been affected by your creativity that they're not even aware of. For instance, what are some of the shows that you have scored that we might have watched? Um, okay, there was a really beautiful uh, feature-length documentary called The Prison Within that was streaming on Prime... Um, I think it's on Apple iTunes now. Okay. So there's, there's that, um, there, uh, part of the hope for the national geographic, the hope, uh, about Jane Goodall. I scored mm -hmm. part of that. Mm -hmm. The, um, Jane's podcast series, Hopecast. I scored that, um, year for years, there was this guy named Bob Vila. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. I, I scored his show for 17 years. Oh my That's goodness. Me playing all those guitars. <laughs> oh really oh yeah well, what I instruments can you play uh guitars basses drums flutes uh piano of course different kinds of keyboards violin really poorly but just so i can write for it well yeah some cello clarinet oh wow so, so do you use a particular program for audio uh yeah i use cubase okay and digital performers still i'm one of the last ones to still use that one Oh, but you know, it's, it's kind of like whatever becomes native, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, DP and Cubase are my, 
those are my my DAWs or my digital audio workstations, as I call it. So, as a musician, where do you fall in the argument between live uh, acoustic musicians and a keyboard generated soundtrack for a film in a perfect world? Which would you rather use? It all depends on the story being told. Hmm. So, because there are there are some stories that need to sound. Um, mechanical or you know so mm -hmm. if if a, if a score is going to benefit from a, a, a more of a industrial but not industrial that's the wrong word but more of a mechanical nuance then synths are going to be the way to go for that if that supports the story yeah and it's the budget too right and the budget well yeah that that's always the decide i mean these days um i write a lot of orchestral scores but the budgets can't afford a 90-piece orchestra wow mm -hmm. We you have know. a question from Mason, our engineer, for you. Oh, hey. okay. Hey, Mason. Hey. Um, I also hey. do film scores as well. Um, mm. And I was just curious because this is something that I encounter a lot, but how do you balance expressing yourself personally with also doing service to the film and to the picture? What a great question. Great question. That's a really We're great question. We're going to have you back, Mason. <laughs> yeah. My personal answer for that is that I make time for my own writing. So, um, I mean, in terms of film scoring is a collaborative art form and I love that. It, it's an amazing thing to um, have to stretch to embrace another person's perspective. So I'm always growing whatever project I'm scoring. You know, sometimes like, like okay, The Prison Within, for example, that score, everything I innately felt for the score, the director innately was on the same page, which was amazing, because that doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes a director wants something different, but if it's a director who I really respect, who really has vision, I know I'm going to grow by having to, to do a rewrite, for example. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, for just for the people out there who may not know what we're talking about, you know, when you're scoring a, a scene, you know, some people can think it's like, oh, well, the composer just gets to do what they want. Like I've heard, you know, people have come up to me and said, oh, you have the most amazing career. You just get to do whatever you want. And I'm like, it is so not. That. No, no, no. This is a service profession. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, you're in service to the director's vision to um, fulfill the purpose of their film. Now, I, I place a value on that. That's valuable to me. To, to help another person fulfill their vision is highly valuable to me. So I really enjoy that. So I don't, I don't see that as a contradiction. However, I also make time to, in fact, just, just last week I completed a piece. I co-wrote a song with someone in India. They contacted me with some lyrics and they asked me to, to set it to music, which was a big honor. This was a really incredible lyricist from India who's in um, Kerala, I think. And um, so that was just music for music's sake. So I, I try to you know, have a balance of writing personally as well. That, that, that helps me. In a way, does that answer it? Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. Let, let, let right. me let me tag on to uh, Mason's question. How does the process work? The director comes in and shows you raw footage or shows you specific scenes, and says, "I'm thinking of melancholy here with a tinge of, 
yellow or something. I mean, I mean, <laughs> we'll, 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 ha, some of them speak that way. Yeah, but I mean, just, just tell us how the process works from beginning to end. Okay, no, that's a it's a it's a good question. It, it again, that can depend. Sometimes a director will send me a script before anything's even shot. Hmm. So that's more rare, but that can happen too. And then based on the script, I come up with thematic material. That happened one time actually. Um, Rainbow Harvest, you know, River, Fe River Phoenix's sister, Rainbow Harvest, was starring in this film called Another Honky Tonk Girl Says She Will. This was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, based on the script, I wrote some music and they actually ended up using that music playing out of the, they, they incorporated that into the film then where the main character was actually listening to the radio. And it was that music that I wrote based on reading the script. Oh, Wow. So, you know, that can happen. That's kind of rare, though. But but usually what happens these days is I'm told this is a final. And I'm saying this in quotes because they're, you know, it's always the footage is usually being changed till the nth hour. Um, and then what I really love to do, first of all, the first thing that I try to do is negotiate not only for money, but for time. Mm -hmm. When I'm working on a project that time is at least as valuable as money because I don't, I mean, I can write super crazy quickly, like the way that anybody can in the industry, but as a norm, I like to approach this artistically, you know, let, let it sit for a minute and mm -hmm. review, you know. Now, will you come uh, up with maybe four or five themes and then incorporate those in different moods and textures throughout, throughout the piece? Right. So basically what happens is I, I watch the film and this is what I tell my students too. Um, this is what I, I watch the film at least 10 times without thinking music. It's very ironic because I'm there to provide the score. Mm -hmm. But the first thing I just want the story it, just to inform itself. Okay. To me, mm -hmm. I really want to understand the story. I want to understand the inner workings of the characters mm -hmm. first. Then I get together with the director and really discuss the inner life of the story. And also, if it's documentary, this also means involving, this involves background that's not even on film, that's on camera. So mm. that I really have a well-rounded, so I'm in relationship then with right. the characters in the film. Right. Once I'm in relationship, so there's this, all this preparatory stuff first, once I'm in relationship, then I'll start writing and then I'll come up with, you know, like, like you were saying, like three to five different motivic ideas mm -hmm. for different characters, play those for the director. If it's a go, then I just start writing. Okay. And then Quincy yeah. Jones said that a, a movie soundtrack, and I assume he meant the same thing for his television work, should never call attention to itself. It should just magically change the mood of the viewer and they can't describe why true yeah. exactly true completely agree with that mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a thankless job if it's well done you don't notice it at all if it if it's and also i have to say though if it's well mixed that's mm -hmm. the other thing because if the score is too loud that can kill it too you don't you have any control over that right that's the director or the editor i, I have no control over that mm -hmm. But I suggest mixes, put it that way. Mm -hmm. I, I strongly suggest mixes when I submit my final cues. Mm -hmm. A cue is a piece of music for a scene, everybody who's 
doesn't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but absolutely, it's just to draw the, the purpose of the score is to draw you into the scene. And depending also if it's fiction, because I score both fiction and documentary, if it's documentary, especially one of the really important roles of, of what I feel personally good scoring of documentary is you don't lead the viewer into a particular emotional conclusion, Hmm. especially if it's a very uh, serious topic. Don't get ahead of the action sort of a thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You 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 want to honor the intelligence of the viewer. Mm. Well, that, that, so, so it's really like holding the this holding the the space. There was a documentary. Um, there's an incredible photographer na- named Abilardo Morel. Have you ever heard of him? No. Um, I don't think so. Okay. He's he's really something. So he uh, he was the first photographer to actually photograph camera obscura, oh. where, where light will come in through a, a small hole mm-hmm. and and then a, and then the reflection will appear opposite you know upside mm-hmm. down on the wall that is that the light is is reflected on mm-hmm. so it basically is, is in other words photographing how our eyes work oh wow yeah and so he has an amazing life story he was a refugee out of cuba came to the united states and in this film that i had it was a real honor he actually requested that i score the film really yeah and um, his wife is also a filmmaker and I've done a lot of work for her and he really liked that. And so when, it, when he actually had a film made about him, which he did not want, mm. he's just a you know very humble guy. He didn't want that kind of, I mean, he's very celebrated. He has like in the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston, there was a whole mid, mid-life um, or mid-career retrospective of his work. Like, you know, he's, he's some really something else but um but like the score for that had to um hold the space for the words that he was talking about in terms of when when he left cuba and why he left cuba as a young boy and that he defied his parents to go back to cuba 40 years later and somehow the the music had to hold the tension of his story Hmm. and support his portraits that were being shown as b-roll while he was speaking throughout mm-hmm. the film. Mm-hmm. So like a score like that, it's a very delicate balance. Very precisely it, timed, I'm sure, too, to the frame. Oh, absolutely. All my scores are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm totally anal when it comes to sync. Mm-hmm. Because that that actually can be, uh, sorry for anybody out there to sync is... Um, when you synchronize a sound with a movement or a, an emotional nuance on camera, that's that's what sync means. Do you ever so, give the director alternatives? For instance, uh, uh, several different treatments of the same beat and allow yeah. him to choose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once I'm set free to do what I wanted, what I feel will be most supportive, I'll write, uh, I'll score a scene but then there's a lot of back and forth. There's part of the, you know, getting back to this process. It's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of back and forth with the director. It's never like, okay, well, this is what I feel should work. So here it is, we're done. It, it's, it's never that way. Then the director watches it and either agrees, disagrees, or actually what I've learned to really enjoy is the back and forth of like, 
well, this is working here, but I want more of something else here. I mean, it never feels good to, to be told you have to redo your work. Right. Like, mm-hmm. However, if you're working with somebody with vision, it's exciting to me. Yes, because and it just keeps getting more and more dynamic. But you would really yeah. need locked picture before you're going to do anything that precise, right? Yeah. Um, the hard part is when I'm told something is a final lock and then it's not. So um, these days I I will write sketches, mm-hmm. but I will not really dig into scoring until I know it's it's really a final. And the directors who I work with know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I'm, instrument I'm really... do you compose on? Um, good question. This... <laughs> This is going to sound really strange. The shower half the time. Cool. That's a lot of time the idea. I, I do my best composing in the shower as well. I'm really good at it. <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes it will, it'll ride in sideways when I'm doing something else. Um, but usually, I mean, what I'll, piano is, is the overall mm-hmm. what I'll compose on. Um, but a lot of times, you know, if I'm, again, getting back to how important it is to have time to work on a film, mm-hmm. you know, over the years, I've learned to trust the infinity of my own imagination. Mm-hmm. So I'll hear something, or I might hear a color or a gesture. Um, I, I sing stuff into my phone all the time. Mm-hmm. Like if I hear a melodic, you know, some kind of melody, I'm always singing melodies into my phone. I have like a gazillion memo tracks in my phone of just melodies that I hear. Wow. Um, oh yeah. Um, but sometimes it's like the color that I'll hear that, you know, that's accessed just through imagination. The reason I need more time is to come up with the right instrument combination to match that color that I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And how do you, how the do prison you t- within is all about that one. That's a, that's, I just love the meaning of that film. Cause it's all about compassion and the score was, was nothing but this process. I'm well, all the f- films I work on, but in, ter- in terms of like hearing these sounds and how can I possibly reproduce that? That was the major, really fun challenge of that particular film. Mm-hmm. Right. So what you're saying is that with documentary, you want the people in the film to tell their story, but with uh, a dramatic piece, scripted piece, mm. we're often cued that something scary is about to happen because the 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 music changes. So we're all, you know, like for me being skittish, I'm all I'm cued by music to close my eyes. Right, right. But you don't want that in documentary correct? No, I, I mean, I personally don't, yeah. especially because when you're dealing with really serious topics, um, it's disrespectful to me mm-hmm. to, to, to be dramatic. It's dramatic enough. Yeah. And, and also the thing is, if you add drama to drama, you get entertainment. Uh, That's really a wonderful expression. You're a documentary filmmaker, Wheezy. Uh, This is just an observer from somebody who enjoys documentaries. Uh, They don't use as much music in a documentary, right? There are glisses and there's... um, transitional transitional things, but not it's not it's not really responsible for the emotion of the piece as much as it is in a dramatic movie. Am I right about that or no? You can almost always have a little bit of music. 
Um, you know, you can pull it way down and not have it, you know, interfering, you know, but I've never had anything scored. I've used cues that I purchased. And then mm. with the cow sills, I used their music. So Ruth has a different experience because yeah. she's been hired to create a score. So it's yeah. just a completely different process. I guess what I wanted to say is, Ruth, is 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 the score less important to the success of a documentary than it is to a dramatic film? Not in my experience. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm actually usually the one always asking for less music. Uh -huh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you understand yeah. its role, and that and that it's like seasoning, and if you overdo it, it's n nothing tastes good. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I'm usually the one. I mean, it's ironic. But, you know, working with the director, producer and the editor, I'm usually one, the one saying it doesn't need anything here. It's distracting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Why put, you know, it works, you know, especially when something's really well done. It needs to be treated really delicately. You don't want to step all over it, mm -hmm. you yeah. know. Um, but I, I think that music can, it, again, it, it just depends on the topic, you know, what's what's being what is the story being told? Mm -hmm. If you, what I do find is like for certain documentaries that I've worked on, if you want to inspire compassion, a score can really help with that. That's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because, because the score has the, you know, has the capacity to really open the human heart. Um, but not in, a, not in a pull on the heartstring kind of way. It's far more subtle than that. So what do you think that we learn as we move through our day? What do we learn from the music that we hear just kind of extemporaneously, whether it's on the radio or in a store or in a coffee shop? Are we constantly, are art kind of molecules constantly shifting based on music that we just happen to be walking through? Um, I think that we're unless we really master our minds, I think that we're influenced by everything around us. Okay. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think music definitely is a part of that, but I think that, I mean, certainly like um, the things that we pay attention to on the news, the kinds of conversations that we have, the kind of conversations that we're exposed to. Um, I think, you know, all of these things um, affect us much more than we're, we may possibly you know, realize. I mean, I'm not saying that there are people who don't realize that, but I think that internal mind management would be a great skill from, you know, people to have for their own peace of mind. Or do we sometimes know what music to put on if we need to kind of take down some tension or? That's, yes, that's the thing. Because yeah, yeah it's powerful. Right. It's powerful. Absolutely. So there's music that can be extremely healing and rejuvenating to the spirit and therefore if it's in rejuvenating to your spirit it's good for your body yeah so you know that there are um large department stores that have teams of professionals yeah. that focus group this is true uh, I, i've yeah. learned this from my time they in broadcast aromas too Yes, they focus group this yeah. stuff to see which type of music, which ambiance is going to um, create an atmosphere in which you, you're likely to spend more money or right. buy their product. I mean, it's the psychology behind it is crazy. It is crazy. And that, that's exactly what I mean in terms of like, if we understand how to work, our, how our minds work, we can't be manipulated so easily. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly emphasizing this to my students, Okay. you know, in another kind of way, 
just in terms of, because most students really are incredibly hard on themselves. Oh. Like, um, like there, there's a, there, there's a, there can be a real self-esteem issue. Is it with, this age group or is it people who are this talented? I that's think there's a, a lot question. of, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I have private students also who uh, wanted to study with me, but didn't get into Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's across the board. I think it's just a, I, I think it's, it's, I don't think it's the result of, of having, uh, being extraordinarily talented or not. I think it's just the human condition. Mm just because it's such an unsure world. It also uh, could be the creation mm -hmm. of music is so personal. It's so raw. It's so vulnerable. True. True. But it does take confidence to express it. Right. You know, right. Um, I mean, I'm always, you know, emphasizing to my students. It's like, you know, this is, we all have the power to contribute to improve this world. Mm -hmm. So it's important to, again, and that gets down to, gets back to like valuing, taking risks, you know, valuing, you know, it's an accomplishment to be vulnerable. Right. You know, that, that's an achievement. That's what, not something to fear. Whatever the that's outcome. A, that's, a, that's an inner triumph. It right? is. The greatest artists are those that can tap into that part of their soul. And, uh, absolutely. I, I think that that's really available to absolutely everyone. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a like an instruction manual that's really missing with that, that, that says something like if you were to open it up, it says, get ready to take risks, get yeah. ready mm -hmm. for it to feel scary. If you're feeling afraid, you're on the right track. And that's why I feel like your book is such an instruction manual. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering for you personally, since you put that in writing 30 years of your energy driving this story and then creating this story and it being out there on Amazon in writing in a concrete, tangible form, has it instructed you in any way to have that out there in the world? Yeah. I mean, it. the writing of it instructed me, actually. Mm -hmm. Because there was like, you know, predicament after predicament that the main character is going through. And it was just so obvious to me as I was writing that writing it, that all of these predicaments were just only designed to help make her stronger. Right. And they're parallels yeah. to writing a book, right? The, this right. journey. Right. Yeah. And, and having it out there is um, definitely something that I would not have been ready for up until now. Oh, okay. Um, you must have gotten I, some fairly profound reactions to this book. Are there any yeah, that you I can have. share with us? Without um, yeah, I've, 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 I think I've gotten many actually. And the, the very first was that there was a child who just lost her father oh, boy. and her mother wrote to me saying that the book is a lifeline for both of them. Oh, yeah. well, you're, you're so that was, that was the, that was some of the, that was one of the very first pieces of, of email that I got. Oh my goodness. Um, wow. And um, people also, it, it's interesting, like, I don't want to, um, I mean, it's important to not connect. This book is completely not a political statement at all. I have gotten emails from people saying that they haven't known how to negotiate in themselves or talk to their children about certain conflicts in this country. Mm -hmm. And that the book has actually given them a way to 
be able to, to discuss certain issues with them. I think your bravery in this book is you're, you're going into some, some very, very, uh, uh, dark, not dark, dark is not the word I mean, but for instance, you, you, you engage in the concept of war and yes. how even people as young as Jay react to that. And I think yes. that's so important. I mean, most that, that's a topic that most parents, because of their own fear of not being adequate enough to talk to them about it about it, uh, want, yeah. want to engage with their children. Yeah, it's the emotion of rage. And how do you, how do you, how do you handle it? Yeah. How do you yeah. handle it? Yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you handle it? Sorry. I didn't mean to finish your story. No, 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 no you no, helped, right. you helped you me helped. with the right word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the reasons this book took so long because I had to go through my experience of working with children in war to see what they go through. What have oh. they taught you? Uh, how much they need to be loved. Yeah. How much they need to be reassured that they're going to be okay. Yeah, that's and the whole. How, that's it. That boils it down to everything. Yeah, right. And that's you know, and the adults though too. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to get back to this well wishes project for a second, if that's okay. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I got an email from this woman in Nakuru, in in Kenya. It was the uprisings of 2007 mm -hmm. and listening to this well wishes CD that I had no clue. This is the one from the kids in the U S to kids in Iraq. Right, smuggled right. It ended up in Kenya. Wow. So long story that there's not time for right now, but it's this woman, it was the uprisings of 2007 and people, it was like Rwanda there for a couple of weeks. People were like burning down each other's homes and just like all this strife. And the only reason I know this is because I had this little CD project. It's like, I, I but I've learned a lot of uh, conflicts on the ground from people. Um, just, just what day-to-day -day people go through, not the news, but just civilian life, you mm -hmm. know? So this woman heard this CD and it's just children expounding on some of the most profound universal truths without an agenda, just mm -hmm. with innocent expression. Mm -hmm. And she wrote to me saying, I was planning to avenge for loss of life and loss of property, meaning she was going to murder and, and pillage in return. Oh. And then she said, but I heard this CD and I decided that I was going to work for peace instead. Oh. Well, there you go. Your work is finished. So, right? So like that. But what yeah. but what did it? What was the fulcrum? Innocent love and the innocence of common sense that's innate to all of us. That was the fulcrum that pried her out of what would have been a perpetuation of all untold hell for sure. her. Yeah. And her family and whoever else. So, you know, that is that that's that's what's needed so all of these experiences that i've had through the also through through the film scoring work though too because that's taught me a lot about all how to be flexible and open-minded how to, to 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 be able to change one's perspective i've learned all those things in the course of scoring films mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or they've been really reinforced you know i i have an amazing career it's it's a great and and how to also detach you can't score films and be attached to what you do. Mm. You can't, mm -hmm. you know, because if it's your film, go ahead and be, it, it, yeah. But if, you, right. you're, if I'm scoring someone else's film, I have to stay to in my lane. You're in mm -hmm. service to it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Be of service to it. Yeah. And, and also, um, you know, but if I 
feel, you know, I like to approach any work situation where there's, I really respect the people I work with. So if they, if they have a, a, a perspective outside of my own, that means I can grow. Mm. I mean, it's not a bad thing to be disagreed with. So rather than feeling threatened, feel like you've been enriched. Yes, exactly. And it took me a long time to realize that, you yeah. know, because I, I used to think like, oh, you know, I, you know, either I really thought my way was better or I thought, you know, whatever, whatever my, there's that kind of egoy yeah. thing or yeah. feeling like, oh, I should have known this, that kind of, uh, okay. Both, you know, yeah. Because they're both egoy, right? right? But they're like, both counterproductive. They're and, they both and natural, have, but they we have to. That's what we have to work against. Exactly. They they don't. They're not the thing. They're not that that does. That's not an expression of one's best self. Sure, they don't move your story forward at all. Right. Well, well we want to thank you so much for being with us. This conversation has been just truly beautiful and enlightening, and we thank you so much. We're going to put links in our thank show you. notes for all that you create that's beautiful and of service to the world. And Fritz is going to tell people where they can, how they can review our show. All right. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You'll find all sorts of binge-worthy stuff. And th th this episode with Ruth Mendelson will become part of the binge-worthy stack that we have for you. We've added everything from the Cowsills to Gary Puckett to Richard Sturban of the Oak Ridge Boys to Mark Summers, to Bill Medley, all kinds of wonderful things. Henry Winkler, Keith Morrison, Josh Mankiewicz, thank you so much for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Thank you so much, Ruth. It was just thank awesome. You. Here come thank your you closing so credits. Great. Thank you so much. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying, so you can contact us at our social media or email us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Ruth Mendelson. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda. John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. Wait, I have one question for Ruth. Yeah. Yes. Is there any indigenous blood in your background? Yes, there is. Because you're just displaying the most beautiful turquoise, your earrings and your ring. That's some beautiful stuff. Not that that's important. It's just I, I wondered if, if it was. Yeah, there is. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay. Anyway, that answered my question. <laughs> okay, now we really are ending this podcast. <laughs> See you next week. Thank you so much. Don't hang up yet, Ruth. We're going to take our picture with you. I'll walk over to the TV screen and stand with you. Okay. So, uh, Mason is going to tell you when exactly to smile. You guys are awesome.